Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today I'm going to be talking to a pro-life activist, film producer, and human rights worker, Jason Jones. You might recognize him as the producer of the film Bella. He is also the co-author of a book called The Race to Save Our Century by John Zmirak, who was on this podcast to talk about the conservative civil war uh, just a few weeks back to give you an idea of how extensive his work in the pro-life movement is and i don't want to give you too many details because of course he's going to tell us about it in this conversation he began working in the pro-life movement while he was still attending the university of hawaii that's where he formed the pro-life student union and he also served as a state chairman of young americans for freedom which is a national group of conservative student activists he became the chairman of the hawaii young republicans served as a chief of staff for state rep Mark Moses. His other credentials include director of Hawaii Right to Life, national youth director of the American Life League, grassroots director of Brownback for President and public relations director for the world's largest international pro-life organization, Human Life International. He's a public speaker who travels frequently, speaking out against abortion and discussing the demands that the plight of the preborn places on each and every one of us. He's sparred with pro-choice activists on everything from ABC's Politically Correct with Bill Maher, Fox, CNN, you name it. Jason Jones is a phenomenal guy. I've I've talked with him many, many times, bumped into him at the American March for Life, and I, I just really wanted to share his insights with you and his passion for life. Jason Jones is the sort of guy that if you're pro-life, he's got time for you. If you're not, he wants to make you pro-life so he can make time for you. But I really, I'm really excited to present this conversation because I hope you'll come away from this conversation uh, as moved and as motivated as I was. So without any further introduction from me, here's my conversation with pro-life activist and film producer Jason Jones. Uh, let's start off just by by talking about your story, because you didn't take the ordinary route into the pro-life movement. This is a very personal movement for you in many ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think most people in the pro-life movement today, Jonathan, ha- have a personal story. And in many ways, I feel that the pro-life, the pro-life movement and the abortion industry they're filled with post-abortive people. Right. And so it's really a battle between people working out the sorrow of their own abortions on both sides. And sadly, my story is quite common. I, I speak a lot, and a lot of folks will come up to me and say the same thing happened to me. And um, I even recently had a woman in her 90s say that the same thing happened to her and her boyfriend all these years ago. And But for me, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Uh, I wasn't raised in a home where we talked about politics at all. In fact, I was raised most of my life. I, my parents were divorced before I was one, and my mom had me when she was 16, and I think they got married and quickly divorced. But um, in my mother's home, it was hostile to religion, and my father was sort of indifferent to religion. So religion had no impact in my childhood, um, but I was... 16 years old, two days before my 17th birthday, when my high school girlfriend rode her bicycle five miles from her house to my house and uh, walked up into my room and woke me up on a Saturday morning with the words, I'm pregnant. And so we spent that Saturday trying to figure out what we were going to do. And we thought we came up with a great plan. She was going to take vitamins and wear baggy sweaters 
And on my birthday, which was in two days, I was going to join the Army and get into the earliest basic training class that I could. I had a friend who just joined the Army in this program for um, kids, the boys, young men, to go into the Army. And uh, in the middle of their senior year, you could leave. You had to take your GED, and you could go right off to basic training. So that's what I did. I went down to the recruiter's office, um, signed the paperwork, and it was just a couple of weeks later. I was off to Fort Benning, Georgia. My high school girlfriend was hiding her pregnancy successfully. And it was sort of our plan that got in our way. Her plan was to take vitamins. That's what she said. I'm going to take vitamins and wear baggy sweaters. Very simple plan. And as she was progressing in her pregnancy, she thought she would need prescription vitamins. She was just buying, you know, regular vitamins at the grocery store. She asked her friend's mother, who was a doctor, to write her a prescription for prenatal vitamins. Her friend's mother wrote the prescription. Um, but then a couple of days later, she was drinking, and she was drunk, the mother. And she called my high school girlfriend's father and said, by the way, I wrote your daughter a prescription of prenatal for prenatal vitamins. Uh, she's pregnant. His response was swift and immediate. He He beat her up and took her to his friend who was worked at Chicago Masonic Hospital, and she had a forced early third trimester abortion at Chicago Masonic Hospital. And, of course, I didn't know any of this was going on. I was in Fort Benning just a few weeks away from graduating and coming home, and she called me on a Sunday morning wailing. The way I explained it is that it was as if her soul was crying, and she couldn't even say the words to what happened. Her father said over, over the other line, we know your secret, and your secret's gone. I, I took Katie to get an abortion. And, um, you know, that's when I became aware, as strange as it sounds, and trolls, when they see my story in print, will say, I don't believe this guy knew. Right. Didn't know abor- I did not know abortion was legal. Did not know it was a thing. Um, I've reflected on it. I did hear abortion before. I remember hearing an inappropriate joke about abortion, and as I've thought about it in the locker room that I just, when I was a kid, I just kind of ignored um, but I really did not know or understand that in our country, the United States of America, it was legal to destroy the most vulnerable member of our family, the child in the womb, until I found out that my child was destroyed by abortion. And so here I was, a young 17-year-old atheist, private in the Army, naive, and I just said that I'm going to end abortion for my daughter. And we know that our child was a girl. Because the abortionist at Chicago Masonic Hospital, after the, quote, procedure, looked up and said, by the way, you had a little girl. Wow. And um, so for me, from that day until this day, I, I've i been driven. And it's been 30 years. And I haven't slowed down a beat. And you know, I became a Christian 13 years into my pro-life work. I was afraid to become a Christian because I was really driven by anger. Right for those first 13 years, and I was assenting to the truth of Christianity, I really resisted for two years because I was like, God, I don't want to not be angry anymore because then I'll become lazy. Then I'll slow down. Then I won't work as hard. And I, and I, I feel I could see that I was driven in a way I didn't see in other people that I worked with in the pro-life movement. And I thought, I don't want to be like them. I don't want to work nine to five. Right, right. I want to have this anger, this sense of urgency. And 
But you know when I became a Christian, almost immediately, um, the anger that was driving me, it, it, it did transform, and I wasn't angry anymore, and I could say I was more driven by love. But, and, and I could forgive, and I could be more understanding. I, I laugh today when I hear people say, oh, Christians are judgmental. I was a very judgmental atheist. Right. I was a very unforgiving atheist in the pro-life movement. And, um, and I was driven by anger and, and revenge. To me, my revenge, I wanted the world to kneel and acknowledge that they wronged my child. That's how I thought. The world will acknowledge what they did to my child. Um, you named your little girl Jessica, didn't you? Yes, we did. We named our babies before they were born. You know, we were two kids from bad places. I was from a broken home, you know, raised by a young woman. My mom was a teenager when she had me. And of course, you could imagine we weren't wealthy. Right. And um, we struggled. My high school girlfriend came from a very prominent Chicago family with a very well-known father and very prominent in the Catholic world, uh, by the way. And so when we found out about the pregnancy, I think what happens to so many young people from family lives that aren't happy is this desire to build a family that's beautiful and happy. But of course, you don't have the resources to do that. You don't have the knowledge or the wisdom, but you have the aspiration. And I think we both were trying to escape into something. And so we were very happy and excited about this. Um, and so when we, you know, we were like, if the baby's a boy, we'll name him Joshua. And if the baby's a girl, we'll name her Jessica. And so when we found out that the baby was a girl, it wasn't as if we, you know, named a dead child. It's, we knew her name before we knew her, you know, her sex. But when we knew, when we found out her sex, it was, her name was Jessica. How did your girlfriend end up dealing with, with the loss of Jessica? You know, it's been very hard. What happened was after the abortion, I came home on leave and her parents went away on vacation and said, you can stay at our house and you'll never see her again. So, you know, for my two weeks of leave, I stayed at their house. They had a big, you know, beautiful house. She was unimaginably wealthy to, you know, my my eyes at that time. And so I stayed at the house for two weeks and, um, and then I went off to my duty station and didn't hear from her for months. Well, what I found out was later that her father sent her to boarding school immediately. And tragically, her mother died six months later. So here she, and her dad brought her home just for the day of the funeral and then took her right back to the boarding school. So the abortion happened, then I was home for two weeks, and she saw me, then she was immediately taken off to boarding school, where she stayed, you know, for the next two years, only coming home for one day for her mother's funeral. Wow. And all of this had a devastating impact on her. And, you know, now she's since been to Project Rachel, and she's volunteers for the pro-life movement and um but as a young woman it was devastating it was devastating to her and vicky thorne the founder of project rachel said something once to me that really was heartbreaking 
She said, Jason, you know, when a woman is involved in an abortion, she implodes. When a man is involved in an abortion, he explodes. She said, you've been exploding. This is, she told me this like 15 years ago. She said, you've been exploding for 15 years, relentless energy pouring out into the world, making movies, running political campaigns, writing, giving speeches, all of this energy. Imagine all of that, instead of going out into the world, came in upon itself. And that's what happens to women. It comes in on themselves. Where I became angry and bitter, and if a man told me he was pro-abortion, I despised him immediately. Utterly disgust. Just disgust. Hatred. Um, But women have that self-hatred. Right. Self-inflicting self-pain, doing things that are self-destructive. I became destructive. I had three Article 15s for fighting my first year in the Army. You know, I was very angry. And um, not that I was not an angry man before the abortion. I mean, I was a aggressive young man, but but it had changed. It had become right. darker. Did her father ever recognize what he did? You know, God is so good. Um Eduardo Verastegui and I, my business partner, and uh, we made Bella together and some other films. We were at the Scavi, and we had a private mass in Rome, the Scavi, and our special intention was that he would repent. And a year to the day of Eduardo and I making that intention at this private mass at the Scavi, I was invited to speak at his parish. Can you believe this? No kidding. So, so this man had to walk around for weeks seeing my picture on posters in his parish that I'm coming to speak on my story. He didn't come to my talk. Uh, Katie did. and um, But that and a friend of his who was a bishop who became a friend of mine had a stern talking to him. Because he was very close to many bishops. Cardinal Bernadine was his best friend. Um, he repented um, sorrowfully and said he wanted to be a part of the team to help us end abortion. So now it was Katie, me, and him as a team. No kidding. We never did any kind of work together, but just him saying that. Right. As strange as it sounds, and then he died a year later. That, I couldn't forgive him. I remember once Father Habiger from Human Life International, 20 years ago before I was a Catholic, told me to forgive him. And I said, even God needs people to ask for forgiveness before they're forgiven. I'm not forgiving this man. And I actually called him in 2000 and asked him to, to repent, and he wouldn't. And, uh, and that was 11 years after the fact, and he gets a call from me, horror of horrors, you know? Right. And I asked him to repent, and he wouldn't. But do you know, as soon as he did, I would have socked somebody in the nose for saying this to me in the past, but as soon as he did, I could understand why he did it, and I could see how he did it out of love. And if somebody would have said to me, 10 years ago, can you understand at least, Jason, how a scared father whose daughter's pregnant by 
I was last in my class. I was a delinquent. I was the last guy in the world. If my daughter brought a guy like me home, he would quickly be shown the door. Right. Right? So as soon as he did that, I could have empathy for him. And um, I could really see, I understood what I would say before there were just words, that I was responsible for this abortion. I would tell men who coerced their, their abortion, their girlfriend or wife to have an abortion or threatened, I would say, you know, I'm just as responsible for the abortion as you. But I didn't really believe it. I said it to try to make them feel better. Right, right. But I didn't believe it, you know. But when Katie's father repented, I could see his fear and his motives. And it was at that moment I realized I was as responsible for that abortion as he was. I got it. I didn't consent to it. I never would have consented to it. I dropped out of high school and joined the Army to be a father. But being a 16-year-old child, doing the marital act with a 15-year-old girl, I should have been thoughtful enough to understand the consequences. As they say on Prairie Home Companion, why do there was a they jo, they, they joke on Prairie Home Companion that the priest gives a, a homily once a year on contraception, and it's why would you get on the train to Chicago and be surprised you wake up in Chicago? Right, right. And so I got. At that moment, I got completely my full responsibility for this abortion, as much as her father's. And I could forgive him. And I, and I do forgive him. And, I, and I, it breaks my heart that I put him in that position and that he had to carry the sorrow of that his whole life. And, of course, Katie has been addled by this abortion her whole life. And it's, it's this responsibility that I played as a young 16-year-old boy. So what sort of, all of that. when you got out of the army and you started doing pro-life work, what did your pro-life work look like? Because you, you've been <laughs> everywhere and you've done a bit of everything. So what does, what did your pro-life career look? How did you start off when you said to yourself, when you found out about Jessica, that I'm going to end abortion? Uh, what was your first step to doing that? <laughs> tell us, tell us the genesis of, of, of your, your, your career as a pro-life activist. Well, you know, this is the world pre-Google. This is the world of card catalogs and libraries still. Right, okay? right. <laughs> so this is 1989, and it began for me at a card catalog in a, in a post-library, Schofield Barracks, and I, I wanted to know more about abortion. I really thought that the world did not know abortion was legal, and all I had to do was tell people this was happening. I didn't think it was happening on a massive scale. I thought it was like a dark secret that was happening in our in our society that people didn't know about. Obviously, not a lot of people would do this horrible thing. But I would need to just tell people this is happening, and they would go, yeah, this needs to stop. And so I got this book, and I remember it was, it was published by Alan Guttmacher Institute. I think it was called Roe v. Wade in Focus, and it was made for, like, high school students. It's the only book I could find in my library, and it was everything you could – Imagine from the research arm of Planned Parenthood, right? Um, but it was a bit sterile. It wasn't. It was. It was matter of fact. You know, it was. It was. Um, it was meant for high school students to talk about the abortion regime. So, I read that, and I, I was really insecure about being uneducated. I was last in my class. I was a horrible student. My goal was always just to do well enough to be eligible for sports, and that was always quite the challenge. Anyway. But I, I knew I, I needed 
to read. And I read a book called The 100 Books That Changed the World. And then I, I bought each one of those books. And two of them became my Bibles. Uh, Plato's Republic and Machiavelli's The Prince. I actually laminated them. And they would go with me as an infantryman all over the world in my rucksack. And my officer would laugh at his the 17-year-old high school dropout with his laminated copy of The Prince. Yeah. That I underlined like, uh, you know, of a fundamentalist Protestant's Bible. Everything was under, underlined and notes and paper sticking out of it. And, and But I just, my mother was the type that anyone who knocked on our door growing up was in our house. Jehovah's Witnesses, vitamin salesmen, encyclopedia salesmen, da-da-da. So I just started going door-to-door in the neighborhoods outside of my base. And my pitch was very simple. I would knock on the door and I would ask the people if they knew that abortion was legal. Right. If they knew what abortion was. And don't you think abortion should be illegal? And these were, a lot of them were migrant workers from the Philippines or definitely first-generation immigrants. And they all agreed with me 100% that abortion should be legal, illegal. And so I was very confident in that this was going to be an easy task. And quickly, I found out about Hawaii Right to Life um, while I was in the Army, I went down to their office once or twice, didn't get to really work with them, but was so excited to find out there were, was a pro-life movement and a pro-life organization. And it wasn't until I got out of the Army and went into community college that I started really understanding how big this was. And I know it's hard for people to believe, but this was, I didn't have cable TV, I didn't have cable news. You know, I was in the army and, and then I was a young man working the night shift, 60 hours a week at Home Depot and going to community college and trying to learn about the pro-life movement. So it wasn't, but it wasn't until after I was out of the army, after I'd been knocking on doors for a couple of years and, you know, reading, I remember though being, I think in the Philippines, I was in the Philippines in, the, in, a, in, a, in an airport with my unit. We were just sitting there with our rucksacks and our weapons uh, waiting to board a plane. And there was CNN on the airport news. And I think it was 1989 or 90, maybe 91. I don't really remember the year, but there was an Operation Rescue happened that was being covered by CNN. And that really excited me. And I was like, I can't wait to be able to do things like that. Right, right. And um, And that was like the one big thing that I saw happening outside of the world that encouraged me. Well, and that was a crazy couple of years, Operation Rescue. 70,000 arrests in like seven years? And I missed all of it. You know, I think it was done by (laughs) 93. Yeah, that's right. 93 would have been the spring of life. I think it was 1992 that was um, the the Summer of Mercy in Wichita, Kansas. That was the last huge event. Um, The spring of life in New York was, was was more or less the final event. Yeah, and so and I, so that's when I was an infantryman. And, and what's interesting is I would say to those of you who are part of the rescue movement, I know this is the a lot of new folks in the movement, but this is a lot of the officer core of the movement. That's why I, I love uh, your podcast, because I know I'm talking to the people that are changing the world, and, and I'm sure there are people who are part of that. Just to know your activism, the reach, that how it changed the world. Here I am. A young man with an M60, I think, I was a 60-gunner at the time, on my lap, falling back on my big rucksack. So I was like looking up at this, the, 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 the TV um, up on the, hanging from the wall, 
while I'm laying back on my rucksack with an M60 across my waist, and I'm watching this on the news, and it gave me such hope, and you and it inspired me. And so people who are part of the rescue movement, I've met people who are bitter. They felt like it was all for nothing, and they've suffered a lot because of their arrests. But you inspired generations of activists, and you inspired people who went on to do work that have inspired people. So the rescue movement was so important. And that led, I believe, to the move to ban partial birth abortion, and that changed the heart of America. Senator Santorum, with those placards on the news day after day after day. And so the 90s saw a real sea change. Yeah, yeah. And I really thank all of those activists that were part of, of the rescue movement and the people like Senator Santorum who stood up there with those cards to change the heart of a nation. I think it's very um, interesting that you say that. I once did an analysis. I did a research project into Operation Rescue some years ago just to sort of analyze their tactics and, and familiarize myself with the history of the pro-life movement. That's one of the things we've been doing on this podcast as well as I find that pro-lifers are very good at telling the stories of the babies who are lost from abortion but aren't really good at either knowing or telling the stories of the pro-life movement, which is now over half a century old. And when I was looking into the impact that Operation Rescue had had, I found out that almost every major pro-life organization in the country um, was founded by somebody who had been involved in Operation Rescue in some way or another. So for those who look at Operation Rescue and say it failed, are missing the fact that the pro-life movement as it exists today would not exist without what they did back in the uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Full stop. No, and I admire them. And, and sometimes, you know, we we don't appreciate those of us who you know, think we discovered the equator. Uh, right. I, I look at the pro-life movement as, you know, well, I guess we're entering our fourth generation, but the the three generations, you know, there's that first generation. I, I say there was a crime that took place at the corner of Roe and Wade, and there was a brutal assault. And there were people that were just standing around and watched it happen. They weren't doctors or they weren't they weren't medical professionals, right? They were... These were just folks who were standing around. They saw this crime take place, and they fell to their knees, and they did their best to keep the patient alive. Yes. And that's the Judy Browns, who I think worked for Kmart, right? Right. And, you know, Father Paul Marks, and and I don't want to start naming names because then I'll, I'll leave names out, but all of the, these pioneers, they dropped to their knees, and they tried to keep this, and they, and they fought for life. Then, then there's the second generation. That's my generation. I actually, when I went to college, the courses I took, everything I did, I was I was doing because I wanted to order my life to protect the child in the womb from violence. Right. I went to the Leadership Institute. I had uh, material sent to me from Right to Life, from American Life League, from Human Life International. These organizations founded by those first generation. Now I wasn't, I wasn't enough to save the patient's life, but I was sort of like an EMT. You know, I was the guy in the ambulance that had some equipment and some training, right. just enough to keep the patient alive to the hospital. And then now this third generation, the Lila Roses and the David Delightons and the Kristen Hawkins, and again, I, I could keep naming names, all of these, this, this third generation, I see, the, I see this generation, they have a big hospital 
and they have the best training and the best equipment, and they're the ones that they're going to save the patient. But if it wasn't for the first generation that fell to their knees with no training, no preparation, and did all they could, or my generation with the little training and the little preparation, the best we could, now this huge movement that's been knit together over 40 years um, by folks who are just figuring it out, um, it's going to be this third generation that saves the patient, that saves the republic. Because Roe v. Wade is the brutal denial of our founding principle, as was slavery and segregation. And the fact that the Supreme Court reached into the 14th Amendment to find the right to abortion is demonic. Yep, yep. No, it's... And it shows that the war on the African-American has always been at the heart of the war of, of our republic. Because, you know, looking into the 14th Amendment, to, when the abortion movement was founded by rabid eugenics advocates, is disgusting and repulsive. To find a right to abortion, which was, you know, propagated to target minorities. Um, but we are in a campaign to save our republic here in the United States because abortion denies our founding principle, which is that we are endowed by God with inalienable rights. And really the founding principle of the West, the Imago Dei, which came from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I was just, I just had this thought yesterday. I'm in Boston and I was with Mother Olga from Iraq, and we were talking about how they say abortion's a religious issue. Right. And I, I came to understand that in a way, you know what? We have to acknowledge that it is. And it's, the, and it's something Rene Girard said, um, that only the Holy Spirit is stronger than the spirit of the age. So, of course, knowing that the human person, the biological beginning of the human person, is fertilization, that's not, that's not an article of our faith, that's a fact. Abortion dismembers an innocent human being is a fact. But that we have the courage to stand up against the spirit of the age to defend the vulnerable, whether it's the child in the womb, whether it's to stand up against segregation or slavery or the Nazis or the communists, that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit is stronger than the spirit of the age. So when we see Catholic politicians today voting for infanticide, they know that when you kill a child after birth, it's a human being. Of right. course they yep. know it. They know before birth it's a human being. They just lack the courage to stand up to the spirit of the age in defense of the vulnerable. Um, but we have this beautiful movement that now, going into the fourth generation of pro-life activists, has been knit together by the Holy Spirit. And for me, I'm glad you're doing this, documenting the history, because I am surrounded by my heroes Yes. Real live walking William Wilberforces. I agree. And yeah. I want people to remember them and to know who they are uh, 300 years from now. Yeah, we often look back at like the civil rights movement and say, you know, we emulate what they do. And one of the points I often make is, look, we're far enough down the road that we don't have to look at a different movement, right? My heroes are people like Joe Scheidler and Monica Miller. And and again, just like you said before, I, I could go on for an hour listing the people that uh, that inspire me and, and, and their life's work, the fact that they were faithful. And as you said, simply responded to the injustice they saw. They weren't even thinking about sophistication. I remember having coffee. It was a, it was a, one of those famous host homes that many pro-life activists know about, you know, where you're traveling across the country, uh, you're on a speaking tour and you just get put up in the home of somebody who's offered to take in some pro-lifers. And, uh, this guy hauls out his old photo albums. He was probably in his seventies. And it's showing us all these pictures of Operation Rescue. And I said, 
Uh, well, so once the rescues got shut down in Canada and they started carting people off to jail, he actually headed over to, to Kansas to join them there. And I said, what made you do it? Just out of curiosity. And he said with tears in his eyes, all we wanted to do was put ourselves in between the babies and the killers. And I remember thinking, if we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's because we're standing on the shoulders of giants like like him uh, who laid the groundwork. And it's it's their passion that we need to remember. Sometimes I, I think that when we're looking at what the pro-life movement has to do, the task that's ahead of us, even if the tactics of Operation Rescue are no longer affected in today's day and age, we do need to recapture the spirit of people like that man who just desperately wanted to put themselves in between the babies and the abortionists. And that's the gospel, to immolate ourselves with the vulnerable. Yeah. That's what we're called to do. And I love how he worded that. That's, that's how I see my apostle. I just want to be between the violent and the vulnerable. And that's what the pro-life movement is. It's to stand with the most vulnerable people in the world at the most vulnerable moment of their life. When a young woman walks into the door of a, a, a crisis pregnancy center, at that moment, that young woman and that child in her womb are the two most vulnerable people in the world, but they happen to also be your, your literal neighbors. Right, right. And the pro-life movement, that's who stands with them. So how did you go from— And it from... took real courage then, right, brother? I mean, I, I, it doesn't take courage anymore to be pro-life. I, you know, we, we, it really just doesn't. So if you think it does, it just doesn't. You know, when people <laughs> think—it's just, i got to tell you, I remember in the early 90s being compared to— when I was in college, the FBI was calling my mother, asking me about my travel plans. I was an atheist, Ayn Rand, objectivist, hard-drinking, partying college kid, um, but I happened to be pro-life, and Clinton's FBI was asking my mother what my travel plans were up to. It was a different time yeah. to be pro-life then. Now I travel with movie stars, and I'm friends with senators and congressmen and governors. It's, uh, It's... It's we're winning, and that's a good sign. And, you know, the more diverse, we are the most diverse social movement in the world. So, so much of the diversity makes you uncomfortable. You'll, you know, you'll see these groups at the March for Life, like Wiccans for Life and lesbian skateboarders who like to fly kites for life. There are just all these bizarre groups fighting to defend the child in the womb from violence. And that's what it looks like to win. Our goal is to have 320 in, in the United States. My goal is that there are 320 million people who find destroying a child unthinkable. And uh, these are going to be, you know, it's as diverse as 320 million people are. That's how diverse our movement needs to become because everyone finds cannibalism repulsive. Right. Slavery repulsive. Abortion is as repulsive as slavery and cannibalism, and everyone on earth should be repulsed by the idea of dismembering the most vulnerable member of our family in the womb of the mother. So when going from your career, starting off, you had a bit of training, you were just getting involved, driven by the passion and the anger from what had happened to your daughter. Um, give us, give us a, I guess, a summation of how you went from that guy uh, to the one now who produces films and hangs out with senators and and you speak all over the place. That's what I said at the beginning of our conversation. Right, you've kind of cropped up in every corner of the movement at some point or another. Um, and I I can't think of of a conference that you haven't been at at some point. So how did you get from there to here? Give us that story. You know, I think it started with a a weird prayer to God, a taunt almost. 
you know, I was so I was going door to door, and I got out of the army, went to college, ran for chairman of um, the college Republicans, and won. I started the pro-life student union at, at the University of Hawaii. Then um, started working at the state legislature for a state representative, and became his chief of staff when I graduated. Then I ran for chairman of the Young Republicans and won. And I was being getting involved in politics. I was involved um, volunteering for pro-life groups. When I got on the board of a pregnancy center, now this is in the mid '90s, um, and I really wanted to reach more and more people. I started doing talk radio, so I did a talk radio show in Hawaii while I was. Um, working for the state representative, and I was an atheist, and then I was asked to be director of Hawaii Right to Life. So now I'm director of Hawaii Right to Life, chief of staff for a state representative, also a waiter, because <laughs> I needed to make more money. I had kids, and um, was going to graduate school, still an atheist, and we, when I became director of Hawaii Right to Life, I was very confident that I would do a good job, and we introduced a bill to ban partial birth abortion that I thought was a no-brainer. It got held up in committee. I went door-to-door um, with a petition in the district of the the state representative who chaired the committee that was holding up our bill, wouldn't let it get go to vote. Got almost every uh, registered voter to sign the petition, including her parents, her, her, her husband, her children, her staff. And I walked in with this petition, and I thought for sure she would hear it, and she laughed. She chuckled. She said, Jason, I'll never hear that bill. And uh, I called Dr. Alan Keyes, who just came to speak for us, and I had his number. And I said, Dr. Keyes, you know, I'm wasting my life. I couldn't be doing more. And I can't even get a, a bill like this that bans one procedure in the third trimester, even out of committee. I'm wasting my life. And Dr. Keyes said, the, do- the darker the world becomes, the further your light will shine. Pray. And so I said a prayer, and this was my prayer. God, I don't think you exist. And if you're real, you're not my friend. And you're not good. Because I'm not good. And I'm trying to end abortion. But I don't see you. I see me and a bunch of broke old ladies in a little office with no money, no resources. Where are you? I said, if you want me to acknowledge that you exist, I need three things. I need rich people. I need famous people. And I need powerful people. You raise them up, I'll serve them, and then I'll acknowledge that you exist. And that was my prayer. And if I look at how I went from being running this little organization in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, in the the most remote place in the world, the furthest place in the world from any other place in the world, that's the Hawaiian Islands. And then a year later, I'd be working in Washington, D.C., doing CNN, Fox News. Bill Maher's politically incorrect. Then I'd be working for the RNC. And then I'd all of a sudden find myself making a movie, working with Steve McAvity, the producer of Braveheart and The Passion of the Christ. And we made a film called Bella. We won the biggest film festival in the world, the Toronto National Film Festival. And I'm working with Justin Bieber's mom, Patty Millette. We made Crescendo. And I think back and I'm like, God answered the prayer of an atheist. A wild prayer. I... How strange. I asked for famous people, rich people, powerful people. And somehow, in a way that doesn't even make sense, I find myself surrounded by people of influence. And um, they're as committed to protecting the child in the womb from violence as I am. And God is raising up 
people of courage. The Spanish Saint Escriva said that, you know, people in the valley can see snow on the hill. Right. And there's snow on the hill now. I'm always, I just, I know, I know what I am. I'm a high school dropout from the south side of Chicago who was last in his class who became a teen parent with very little gifts and talents. Um, but I thank God that now he is rising up. Very talented people, privileged people, successful people, people with a lot to risk. I've never risked anything for the pro-life movement. I never had anything to risk. It never took courage for me, never once, to defend life. Um, but it takes courage for people who weren't personally wounded by abortion to risk everything. And we see people like Eduardo Verastegui or Benjamin Watson that have no reason to stick their nose other than God demands it, right? But that they have, they're sticking their nose in the most dangerous, contentious social issue in the world. And we find every day more and more and more people of influence willing to do that. And I, I'm just grateful for God. And so for my part, to just go back to your question, I think I went off track. I just wanted to reach more people more effectively every day. Right. So I started knocking on doors. Then I got involved in media and trying to lead organizations so I could co-opt them. And at college, I would tell my, my peers, my cohorts, who were pirates, let's steal every organization on campus and use it to fight abortion. And so after college and poaching organizations, now I, I look to influence organizations, whether it's my local Republican Party or the National Republican Party or working with political campaigns or movies. You know, what's great about a movie is Let's say a million people see Unplanned. Tens of millions saw news stories about Unplanned. That's right. You know, and let's say you're working with a pro-life candidate for office. They might not win, but every debate, every ad can save a life, can change culture. So how did, so that's why how did you end up? Camp. How did you end up I'm in sorry? that? How did you end up in that storytelling um, business? Because that's something that you do that's sort of unique. I don't know of any other pro-life activist who who cut their teeth doing activism, right? Knocking on doors, working for a right to life group. Um, how did you end up in the in the storytelling business? I think it's sort of like Malcolm Gladwell's book, Ten Thousand Hours. I knocked on a lot of doors from 1989 to 2000. Every free moment was knocking on doors, and knocking on doors is learning to tell stories. And But when I really, the, the moment I changed as an activist was in 1999. I was giving sort of those old school talks on um, abortion, you know, this is an egg, this is a sperm, this is how the child develops in the womb. And it was to junior high students, of all things, it was eighth graders, in the basement of a church in Hawaii, St. Jude. and. Um, wasn't Catholic, but I was the director of Hawaii Right to Life. And so there I was. And as I was giving my talk, nobody knew my personal story because I didn't feel it was mine to share. It was Katie's story and I didn't, and, and, and I would feel guilty. My, only my closest friends knew what was the cause of my passion. So there I am in the basement of this church talking to eighth graders. In the middle of my talk, I see this little girl and her arms crossed over her waist and she hugs herself across her waist, and she leans in, and I see this just one tear come down her eye. And that told me everything. This young girl has already had an abortion, and she's in eighth grade. Yeah. 
and I don't know why this came to me, but the saying came to me, when you point a finger at somebody, three fingers are pointing at you. And so I said that out loud. I said, I don't want anyone in this room to think I'm pointing a finger at anyone who's had an abortion. Because if that were the case, you need to know that there's three fingers pointing back at me. That was the first time I told my story publicly. And I felt ashamed because it was Katie's story. I didn't use her name. She told me to use her name eventually, but she said, please use my name. Um, but I, uh, I said that, and then I told my story, and I saw a change. All of a sudden, the kids that were doodling were leaning forward, and everybody was paying attention. And then I realized it was uncomfortable, and I still hate telling the story. And I explained it to people. If you lost your daughter to a drunk drinking and driving, would you want to tell that story? No. In fact, when I wrote my book, The Race to Save Our Century, which was a book that took me 16 years, and I had the help of, I think, the best writer in America, John Zmirak. Um, and I thought it was a very serious book, and it received a lot of great reviews. Yeah, we just had him I on the thought, podcast. Uh, John, you've had John on? Yes, yes. Uh, he is he is my hero. The fact that I get to talk to him on the phone and he's my writing partner every day, I get to talk to him is the, the greatest privilege that's unimaginable because he's a genius <laughs> and he's funny yeah, and he's hilarious. quirky and strange in all the great ways. Probably in your interview where his dog's barking. I think the Beagles went off at least once. <laughs> exactly. Okay, he's a great man. And I wrote that book, and my hope was that no one will ever ask me to tell my story again. They'll ask me to talk about my book. But that's not the case. And and I recognize that my story comforts people who are, who are involved in abortion. Women who were abandoned by the men in their lives want, like to know men actually do care. And the story touches people. Stories touch people. And so that's sort of when I realized the power of stories was the day at that basement in St. Jude and, and, um, at this little church in Hawaii. And that's when I realized, okay, there's a movie that came out in 1996 called ridicule. Okay. It's a French movie about a nobleman trying to get aqueducts to drain the swamps to save his peasants. And he sort of had, he goes to the Versailles with all of his plans and his blueprints. I was that guy. I had my plans blueprints, this is how we change the laws, this is how we pass legislation, this is how we can ultimately amend the Constitution. And I realize no one, no one cares. But stories will focus their attention, and we can use stories to push them towards achieving all of these objectives. And one thing I would like to say, that the goal of the pro-life movement is full legal protection for the child in the womb from the violence of abortion. Our Christian vocation tells us always to stand with the vulnerable. That's our job. We cannot escape from whether it's our neighbors without homes, whether it's the persecuted church. 75% of, of when we're told to tithe in the New Testament, it's to give to the persecuted church. We're always to be thoughtful of the persecuted church. Our neighbors without homes, people are sick, struggling, suffering abuse. But the goal, and so that's our job, to stand with the young women in these pregnancies and in raising children. And, um, without support, which so many young women have to do. We're called to be there with them every step of the way. But the goal of the pro-life movement is, as uncomfortable as it is, Bonhoeffer says, the goodness of God pushes us to conflict. That's the facts. Right. And the conflict only shows up 
when you're working for legal protection for the child in the womb. So if you think you're called to do something else other than that, you were unfortunately born into a, a constitutional republic. And that means your duty as a sovereign, just as if you were a monarch, you could not escape your duty as a sovereign. Well, living in a constitutional republic, your duty as a sovereign is to make sure everyone has full legal protection from violence. It is not an option. It is not a choice. And the pro-life movement exists to make sure that happens for the child in the womb. So when you talk about uh, conflict being inevitable, um, that's 100% true. And anybody who's who's done anything in an activist capacity knows that. Um, and my, my favorite thing you've ever written is, is still the pro-life art of war. Um, your, your sort of strategy document slash column that laid out why um, the pro-life political lobby could be doing a lot better in your reasons for doing it. And I didn't know when I read that article that you toted Machiavelli around when you were in the army, but I think that column makes a lot more sense with that, <laughs> with that context in mind. But give us a rundown. What is, what is the pro-life art of war? And the interesting thing is, is that you wrote that pre-Trump, um, before the right started treating politics like combat. Uh, so what is the pro-life art of war, and how can be, uh, pro-lifers be implementing it now? Yeah, well, let me be, be up front. I'm not saying to be unjust, to be dishonest, to bribe people, to to hurt people. But what I, what I was saying is I had the privilege of working around one of the most powerful lobbies in the world in the early 2000s, working around and through and with. And um, while working with this lobby, I learned a lot. <laughs> and they didn't care about virtue signaling or public gestures. They cared about one thing. And if you were with them, they were with you. And if they were against, if you were against them, they were against you. And that's it. It's just that simple that we need to take the child in the womb as seriously is APAC takes Israel security. We need to take the child in the womb as seriously as the NRA takes AK-47s. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. Right? Like, we need to take it that serious. We need to be that serious, that practical. I don't walk into a politician, I uh, don't walk into a politician's office and that they can tell you about their time with Mother Teresa and how they adopted a kid. I want to know how they're going to vote. Are they going to support full legal protection from the child in the womb from the violence of abortion? Yes or no? Yes, you have my support. No, you don't have my support. The other thing is we need to work at compromising the other side and getting our side not to compromise. So, but we, we, um, we do the opposite. We, we forgive pro-lifers for compromising. And we don't work at all with the other side. And that's the, the total recipe for failure. The NRA, any, success, any successful lobby, straddles two parties. The abortion industry straddles the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. Right? The NRA straddles both parties. Right. The Israeli lobby straddles both parties. The gay lobby straddle, straddles both parties. But unfortunately, the pro-life movement has become a part of one party. Politically, we can, and, it, and that's, that's what we cannot blame the parties. We exist to advance a special interest. We are the largest social movement in the history of this country. We are the most, and I, and I know that this podcast, forgive me, when I say this country, I mean my country. So I'm, I'm thinking, I think politics is local. 
And so I don't begin to understand the pro-life movement at all in Canada or in the UK or in Australia or New Zealand. So when I'm speaking, I'm speaking really of the United States. Right. But in the United States, we're the largest, most diverse movement in the history of this country with the most passion. But yet we are the least effective politically. Our abortion laws are unbelievably... Who compares to us? China, Cuba? Canada. Canada, Vietnam. Maybe that's it. North Korea. North Korea. There's no effectively no pro-life movement in Western Europe, but their abortion laws are much more restrictive than ours. And a much lower abortion rate. So we rate have too. no one to blame but ourselves. And I'm not saying we. And part of the problem is that it is such a, a noble cause. It is so unspeakable and unthinkable that we think God's going to take care of it. You know, we don't think God's going to take care of our taking out our trash. But of course, God is going to will the end of abortion. It's his will. Of course, it's his will. But it, his will also is, it's his permissive will. It's not his active will. And um, unfortunately, a lot of men had to land at Normandy defeat, to defeat National Socialism. And a lot of people died in the march across Europe to defeat totalitarianism in Europe. And... Um, that was an unspeakable evil. And we just, to me, ending abortion is as simple as taking out the trash. Unfortunately, we have 40 years of trash that we need to haul. But it's as simple as hauling 40 years of trash. We just need to do it. And we know that we have God's grace. I mean, all those of us in the pro-life movement, sometimes I'm embarrassed to ever take credit for anything because I'm inept. I'm cowardly. I'm, I'm fearful of failure. I, I'm always tripping over my own self. In this movie I'm making right now, it has literally been knit together 100% by God. I sort of stood around and watched this project just assemble itself in spite of me and my team. And so God's grace is with us in a way that's unbelievable. I'll just give you one example. There's someone I needed to reach for my project, and I was walk- but I couldn't reach. And as I was walking down the streets in New York City last week carrying camera equipment with a phone tucked in my ear, I hear a woman's voice say, Jason, is that you? Jason, is that you? Jason Jones? She didn't even see me. She heard my voice. It was this young woman that I wanted to reach out about my project who lives in D.C. who happened to be walking in the streets of New York and heard my voice. She had changed companies, and so I, could, she, I needed her new information and was able to get it right there. Right. And that's, things like that happen all the time. So, of course, we're, we're, we're surrounded by this sort of irresistible grace that God gives us but we still need to act. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you've been acting on multiple fronts. One of the last things I wanted to discuss with you before the podcast uh, is over is is you do a lot of work in a different countries. Actually, when I was talking to your friend John Samirak, he mentioned that, for example, you were in Iraq on election night 2016. Um, and that's because you do work in Iraq and, and, and all over the place. And because of that, you've actually been exposed to things that most pro-life activists in Canada, the United States, and Western Europe aren't aware of. For example, you previously mentioned to me um, this one example of abortion being used as a tool of genocide. So tell us just a bit about the work that you're doing abroad and and then specifically that story, because I'd never heard of it, and I've been working full-time on the pro-life movement for years. So I would, I would wager that most pro-life activists actually, and shockingly, haven't heard that story. Yeah, we're actually developing a film on this story at the Barron Massacre. So my organization is a bit unique, so our mission is to do one thing two ways. 
protect the vulnerable from violence. We do that by communicating the truth about the human person that most people don't understand, the incomparable dignity and beauty of the human person. People, if they understood what the human person was, they would treat the human person with due respect. And the other thing, uh, and, our, and the other way we protect the vulnerable from violence is by insp- inspiring solidarity. And how we do that is we make movies. I write. I give speeches. We run influence campaigns um, for the, for everything from the child in the womb to, to vulnerable ethnic and religious communities. For me, from the very beginning, I never saw. I never understood how protecting the child in the womb became separate from other um, direct threats to human life. I'm not a fan of the seamless garment. I think that the seamless garment is why abortion is still legal. What the seamless garment does is it 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 com- takes abortion and compares it to unlike incommensurate issues. For example, what minimum wage should be? Well, whatever that has that's a prudential issue. It's unlike and incommensurate to abortion. Don't ever bring up abortion. Don't ever bring up the destruction of my child in the same conversation as um, as Cardinal Supich did and does often, as what minimum wage should be. Right. It's offensive, as it would be offensive comparing um, the Autobahn to the Holocaust, to to a Holocaust survivor. It would be be really offensive. Um, But I do think that abortion is like incommensurate to many things, unfortunately, like genocide and democide and unjust total war. You know, abortion is simply the direct intentional killing of a vulnerable human person. And so from the very beginning... I founded my organization because I didn't see an organization that worked that way, and I just wanted to defend vulnerable children from violence, from the child in the womb to the young Yazidi girl in, in Mount Sinjar in Iraq. And like that young, that gentleman from Operation Rescue, since I was 17, I've been literally addled by the idea of children suffering violence. And so that pushes me around the world, from Iraq to Sudan to now occupied East Turkestan. Um, there is uh, China invaded East Turkestan in 1949, and they've been waging an increasingly uh, aggressive war of genocide. Right now, between one to three million Uyghurs are in concentration camps. And you're hearing that, and you go, Jason, that's an exaggeration, that's hyperbole. Google it. It's well-documented. Uh, three million people in concentration camps. Men are being killed and they're bought, they're being incinerated. Women are being men are being forcibly sterilized and women are being married off to Han Chinese Uyghur women. Um, but uh, a real tragedy happened to the Uyghur, where the Uyghur, being Muslims, were disobeying the one-child policy and they were just having children. They were ignoring it. The Chinese Communist Party tired of it. This. And they, they rolled into East Turkestan, into Baran, Baran, and they drove around knocking on doors, walking through stores, and every pregnant woman they could see, they hogtied, threw into trucks, took to a warehouse when they were forcibly aborted. And over a 72-hour period, you had a massacre of t- over 250 children, one womb, one woman, one baby at a time. You had a massacre of 250 preborn children. Whenever you think of, you, you, you can't hear anything more repulsive about this abortion regime, they find ways of surprising us. Yeah. Now Massachusetts wants to, to um, outdo Virginia and New York with even a grosser abortion legislation. 
in China, you find out about a massacre, a literal mass killing that took place in the wombs of 250 women. What year was this? Uh, this was 20 years ago, 20, uh, 29 years ago. And the BBC just reported on the concentration camps you're referring to literally this week. And that's right. So that was my argument in an article I wrote several weeks ago that the genocide of the Uyghur actually began in the womb. So the communist Chinese first started in the womb, and now they have millions of them in concentration camps. So I hate saying this because I hate minimizing each and every abortion is, is a, an epic tragedy, but we are in a battle not only to defend the child in the womb from violence, but it's really a struggle to save civilization because our civilization rests on an anthropology that was birthed with the incarnation. And our civilization rests on this idea that our founding fathers in the United States called self-evident, the inalienable dignity and beauty and rights of the human person. But in fact, it is, it is self-evident. But, but what's the source of that self-evident truth? And the world did not know what the source was until the second person of the Trinity became man. And then for hundreds of years following, as Christians tried to wrap their mind around what does this mean to be the Imago Dei? What does this mean for God to become man? What does this mean on the nature and dignity of the human person? And this produced, this was truly the good news. This, this transformed the world, a world of slavery and violence and cannibalism and brutality and tribalism to where even non-Christians, this Christian vision of the human person is transcendent in many ways. Um, but it was the Catholic Church that taught the world the truth about the human person, and as the world is forgetting the truth about the human person, um, it is our job to really save civilization, and the battle for civilization is in the womb of women. Because as we deny the dignity of our own children, and we deny the dignity of women, um, all that is in the future for our posterity is is, is a brutal, cold, lifeless and loveless tyranny. Final question, Jason. Where can people find your work? We have two websites, movietomovement.com. And Movie to Movement, uh, we produce films and we promote other films that promote the incomparable dignity of the human person and inspire solidarity with the vulnerable. And then the Vulnerable People Project, our website, is at thegreatcampaign.org. And our mission is in a very direct way through influence campaigns, through writing, through white papers, through speaking, and through media like yours, we work, again, to promote the truth about the human person and inspire solidarity with the vulnerable. And the vulnerable aren't weak. The vulnerable are, are people that are placed in impossible situations. And we are, are placed in these positions of security and safety, not on our own merit, but by grace and, and uh, by the sacrifice of our posterity. So we need to share the burdens of the vulnerable. And when we do that, they're not vulnerable. Thank you so much for taking the time to go over all this with us. Uh, it's a privilege. Thank you so much for this podcast. It's a great service, not only for us today, but I think our posterity will be, you know, for hundreds of years listening to these shows. So thank you for what you're doing.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with pro-life activist, human rights activist, and film producer Jason Jones. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out the other episodes of this podcast, as well as opinion, commentary, and daily news updates, please go to lifesitenews.com and check that all out. You can find our podcast on any podcast platform. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.